Welcome to Across the Gun Counter, guys. I'm your host, Joe Riva, joined by my co-host, Tyler Weaver. And we, this week, are here to bring you another rifle overview. We had a lot of positive feedback, and it's kind of fitting. Yeah, we just hit 100 downloads with the original, our first episode, which was the SKS rifle. Yeah, um, finally hit 100, what, 100 downloads, right? We finally hit 100 downloads, and so that's cool that then, you know, hey, to celebrate, we're going to release the next uh, Military Surplus episode overview which what rifle are we talking about so today we're talking about well a rifle i actually have in the shop right now mm -hmm. the arasaka type 99 which is personally one of my favorites see i think the the arasaka is such a cool rifle and this rifle is surrounded with oh a lot of misconceptions a lot of fud lore if you will mm -hmm. yeah it's i mean there's there's the whole history behind it of you know back in the day everyone would always say they're unsafe if you shoot them they're gonna explode that's not true at all tyler i mean i'm sure yep. you can attest to that yep and it's one of the things like growing up I always kind of disregarded them because they were so prevalent at gun shows and they're just like cast aside oh yeah they were just no I don't know if you noticed that but like all the gun shows we would go to it's like nah it's just a Jap rifle you know yep pretty much a lot of people always talked about how cheap Mosins used to be but I think people always yeah. forget about how cheap Arisakas used to be the last ditch ones in particular yeah, used, used to be, to be. Yeah, they used to be like 100 bucks, you know, 150 bucks. Hell, I actually bought one for $150 a few years ago when Mosins were going up to about $200, $300. Mm -hmm. I don't have that rifle anymore, unfortunately. That was a cool one. And, you know, people overlooked them all the time, too. Like you said, they yeah. were, you know, they were thrown into the corner kind of at shows. Yep. I know at, at one point I used to have three of them, but, you know, I'm just buying into other projects. They've all gotten sold off. And right now I'm kind of not in the market, but half-heartedly looking for one that is complete. Now, I know I'm going to be paying a pretty penny for it. If you find one with the all the, the all the features that we're going to discuss in this episode, I mean, you're talking easily $800 oh. more sometimes. Oh, especially. You know, some go up over 1000 with the mom and stuff and everything intact, yeah, it's it's amazing mm -hmm. how much they've actually gone up in the past couple of years, like most military surplus rifles for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we dive into it? Because I know we're, we're throwing in a lot of lingo that some people probably even aren't even familiar with. All right. So I think the first thing is, why are we why are we doing the Arasaka? What's what's the reason for the Arasaka? I mean, for me, I just like it. <laughs> you see, we both we both like the rifle. We you know, there's so many of them out there. Like we said, they were kind of cast aside at gun shows. They have a lot of misconceptions around them. We we both have a decent amount of experience handling them and shooting them, which is something else we're going to dive into is shooting them. And the ammo availability is not not as prevalent as I think any of us would like. Yeah. And honestly, it's one of those rifles where people don't appreciate it enough just because they don't know enough about it. No, absolutely. They With those misconceptions, it makes people think, well, they're not safe, so therefore we shouldn't shoot them. You know? Yep. And so with the rifles and people never having shot them, I actually had two in the house growing up, which was pretty cool. Did you have any growing up in the house? No, never. No? Okay. So a little personal connection, which I think is really cool about the Arasaka. Uh, we had one last ditch rifle that was given to my father by, I believe, his uncle or an uncle in the family or something like that. And the other one, which is really cool, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do as deep of a dive into this particular model, but was the Type 2 paratrooper rifle. We actually, yeah, we actually had one of those that was actually given to my grandfather who served in the Navy during World War II. Basically, at the end of the war, you know, uh, some commander or something on top of the ship said, hey, if anyone wants a Japanese rifle, come on board deck. We're handing out Japanese rifles rifles and you uh, got the good pick oh yeah and it's funny because you know up until years later we hadn't really you know not known much about it and then you know growing up my dad told me a little bit about it and looking at it it's it's a really impressive rifle unfortunately it got damaged a few years ago so we actually have to do clean it up a little bit but mm -hmm. it will see life and it will be shooting soon <laughs> 
Yeah. So now for those of the uh, listeners that don't know, the paratrooper type 99s, well, typically when you hear a paratrooper gun, it usually has some sort of folding stock or it's a shorter made version of it, kind of like a tanker, something of that nature. But the paratrooper type 99 actually breaks in half. Yes. Yeah. There's a, a cool little, like, what is it? Like a, a half turn lock mechanism. Yep. It's actually a screw that kind of goes in there. And when the rifle is, yeah, it's similar to... I guess what a lot of people would associate with like a Ruger 1022, something very yeah, like si- any takedown rifle, yeah. pretty much. Exactly, something very. Actually, it's funny because now as I'm kind of thinking about the Ruger 1022, how that kind of takes down the Arisaka is very similar. You slot it in the notch and then tie it off. Um, I'm not saying anything, but Bill Ruger did serve over in Japan or not Japan, <laughs> but he served over in the Pacific during World War II. Just yeah, yeah. thought. Yeah, I mean, you never know where these gun makers draw their inspiration from a lot of times. Oh, exactly. And like Tyler was saying was, you know, there was a two-part paratrooper stock. And the reason actually behind why they had this two-part, uh, you know, paratrooper rifle was early on, I believe it was when they were invading the Dutch East Indies. You know, the, the Japanese actually had a paratrooper drop and it went, I mean, the invasion went well for them, but getting their weapons did not. Uh, most of the rifles were separated in the drop and the guys ended up going down to, you know, pistols and knives and hand grenades, things of that nature so they eventually found it was oh, easy geez. yeah yep that's why they ended up going with the takedown version huh, that's new i actually did not know that no well hey you know something you learn something new every day even when we're recording absolutely <laughs> yeah really cool really cool rifle and i don't know how much it actually saw combat later on with the paratroopers because you know the japanese paratrooper drops later on in the war i'm not 100 percent familiar with but yeah that was the intention behind it was to break it in half so it was easier to drop and land with they'd have it in two parts assemble it and bam there you go your rifle was in you know intact nice so let's get into it like why is it actually called the type 99 the type 99 comes from the year it was made now it confuses a lot of people because the japanese calendar is completely different from I mean, many of the other calendars, you know, that everybody is used to. The Type 99 was actual, actually the model of the 99th year, which happened to be, what, 1939? Yes, 1939. So on the Japanese calendar, it was the year 99. So the top of the receiver actually reads 99 type in the Japanese characters. You know, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yep. See, we're, we're learning yeah, see, off each we're other. We're both going to be learning something on this. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, it's actually the Japanese use a different calendar. Yeah, which is yep. which, which they're similar to their, I guess I should say, with their markings and stuff. The I believe it's the kana, kana syllable. I believe it is. Oh. I know someone's gonna yell at me from. <laughs> yeah, know. I was gonna say that I that I couldn't tell you. Yeah, but they had the they would have the Japanese symbol beforehand, and then they would just have the serial number right after it. I gotcha. Now some of them do have the uh, like a series number and an arsenal marking because I know they'll they'll be marked with like. Uh, well, one of, I mean, shit, I think there was like maybe eight different arsenals that made them. Well, yeah, that would be like the symbol that would, I should say, beforehand would have been, would have been the arsenal marking beforehand and then followed by the serial number. And I believe they went up to 99,999 before they rolled over to the next lot. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I know they made a ton of these rifles. Oh, yeah. There were so many different variations of them over the years, like just even just the paratrooper one. Which even initially was the when the Type 99 had initially come out, they had released it as a long rifle, and there was a short rifle. And the long rifle didn't really didn't really do what it was supposed to. It was actually too long. It was very similar, mm, more to more what like it, the Type 38. Correct. Yeah, to like the Type 38 long rifle exactly. And they had found in China very early on that yeah, these rifles are meant they're. <laughs> 
they're not even to World War One standards. We need to kind of cut these back a little bit. So they basically then went to production of solely the, I guess you could say like the, not carbine rifles, but the shorter rifles, which are what yeah, are more yeah. commonly known as your typical Type 99. Yep. Yeah. And I think they were like a 44 inch overall length for that. Yeah, I believe so. And the, the Type 99 in general, they found that it was actually quite a good rifle for the Japanese. The Japanese had wanted a rifle that was going to supersede their previous their previous cartridge, which was the 6.5, the 6.5 Japanese. Mm. Yeah, 6.5 by 50. Which was a nice, accurate round, but it didn't have enough impact and it didn't do as much damage as the Japanese had wanted. Mm. And, and basically they found very early on in China that, yeah, you know, their rifles and their machine guns were both in this caliber and they did a great job at wounding the Chinese soldiers. But yeah, you can wound a soldier and you can take him off the field for X amount of time, but... He is going to come back at some point. So yeah. they had a lot more guys coming back to the fight. And with a country like China, hey, do the math. <laughs> People aren't exactly... Uh, In short supply. A, uh, limited resource, yeah. Exactly, even even before Mao. And that being said, they needed something that was going to have a little more impact and was basically going to stop, you know, I, I don't want to say stopping power, but a little more stopping power behind it. Yeah. I always thought it was funny, though, because it's like, you know, they bumped up the caliber. They went from the 6.5 to the 7.7, but then they cut down the weight of the rifle to like 8 almost like eight and a half pounds, something like that. So it's like heavier shooting round and we'll lighten the rifle. You know, nobody's going to feel the difference. No, and to be honest, though, shooting them, they're really they're not, not bad. No, they're actually, I'd say a little more, you know, it's been a while since I've shot one, but they're more comfortable than half the .30-06 rifles in that, in that era, you know, in that range. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it has to do with the contour of the, the butt plate. Mm-hmm. You know, oh. where, where that whole area hits your shoulder. You know, it, it 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 does have a nice shape to it. Oh, yeah. With the exception of the last ditch ones. Before we even get into the last ditch, mm-hmm. let's talk about the original Type 99. We said it was designed in, you know, in 1939, and it basically served until 1943 with no changes. What were, what were some of the unique features of that rifle? So one thing a lot of people don't even really consider is that that rifle cocked on closing. Okay. So where some rifles, like a Mauser, where you... Once you fire the round, that firing pin's drop. You really have to put effort into lifting that bolt handle because it's cocking it as you're doing so. So then, you know, you throw the bolt back, push it forward, then it's pretty easy. With the air socket, pops up nice and easy, goes back, and it uses the inertia of closing the bolt to cock it. So it's a, a much smoother feeling bolt, in, honestly, in my opinion. But it's a, it's one of those things a lot of people like that about the rifle. But getting into it they were some of the strongest receivers of the era oh yeah that's even after the metallurgy that was in into those receivers was incredible oh yeah even after the war they had found out the the u.s army ordnance department they had tried to blow up some of the receivers and they had Mm -hmm. overloaded the rounds so much and they just could not destroy those receivers and the other thing if i mean one thing that a lot of new shooters might be thrown off by is the vent hole directly on the top of the receiver. Mm-hmm. So that's actually made to vent gases away from the shooter. Let me ask so you. In the event that you do have a ruptured casing or something like that. As, as a gunsmith, have you ever seen someone who has accidentally welded one of those holes or talked about welding holes and had a bit of a pressure? No, honestly. Anybody <laughs> that's like gotten an Arasaka, they start doing a little bit of research and they're like, oh, it's supposed to be like that. See, I've actually heard of a couple people actually filling those holes and, you know, that's, no, then you will Mm. potentially blow the rifle up. Yeah, it's one of the things, good guns are made to blow up. (laughs) I mean, seriously, for lack of a better term, where, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, gases are going to get shot back through the bolt. Look at Mausers, the... um, the back cap, I forget what it's called, I'm drawing a blank, that screws into the fire or the firing pin 
screws into that big flange on the back okay. is made to protect the shooter's face from gases if they were to come back through. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of rifles, once you start diving into them, they're made with these, uh, I don't want to say fail safes, but they have more protection built into them. Yeah, basically to prevent the rifle from blowing up on the shooter or basically if it is going to cause any kind of you know, defect, it's going to go away from the shooter itself. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's the, the soldiers that are important. Yep. You know, they can always get more rifles. Yeah, despite how crudely they may get, but going on. <laughs> okay, yeah, that, that might have been a bad, bad thing to say with the Japanese in World War II. But going on. You, you, know, what I'm, you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> Some, uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, yeah. So some other cool features is, you know, we, we were talking about all the, the serial numbers, the symbols and stuff like that on the receivers. Outside of the different markings and stuff like that, one thing I always found really cool about them was the aircraft sights. Yes. Which which none of the ones that I had still had the aircraft sights on them. Yeah. Un- Yelp, it's un- a shame. Yeah, the last ditch rifle we have is doesn't have it, but the, the Type 2 paratrooper does. And mm-hmm. that that's such a cool sight because for those who don't know, when I say an aircraft sight, it's literally designed like aircraft wings. So you can actually lift the rear sight. And this is what it was designed for. It was actually, you lift the rear sight and you can actually aim and elevate it to shoot at a potentially a low-flying fi- low Chinese plane. Yeah, and Be- from my understanding, it, it what helps you get your lead yep. for the speed of the aircraft. Yep, so they actually were designed to shoot at airplanes and that's why they were called aircraft sites which because what they had learned in china was what little air force the chinese had they were older planes yeah which could be you know potentially taken down potentially shot 7.7 round you know yep, absolutely and that's why they also gave them a monopod if you want to call it that <laughs> <laughs> well that's what they called it so they called it a monopod i call it a uh, paperclip yeah a paperclip is a good word i think the bipod on a show show is better than the monopod on an arisaka and that that's saying something that really so the monopod on the arisaka is what maybe eighth inch thick steel rod oh, that very... comes out from the uh uh one of the barrel bands yep and it it folds upwards towards the muzzle end and it's just a bent piece of steel rod that you're supposed to support yourself with and many of them just got so mangled up i mean it, it's honestly they hard look- to find a rifle that has a decent one on it yeah they actually kind of look like a paperclip not even joking yeah yeah that's why i call them paperclip it's just this yeah. flimsy bent piece of metal that's under the end of it looks like it's kind of trying to hold that uh the forend on <laughs> yeah it's not thankfully but because yeah. that would not be something I would trust to it. But, you know, it's part of what they did. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those rifles, people just ditched them. And another part that was often ditched with the rifle is the dust cover, which was also another flimsy piece of steel that actually had a track on the outside of the receiver and a hole that the bolt handle would protrude through. So when you run the bolt to the rifle that dust cover would slide back with it and slide back over the action but many of those were just ditched in the pacific in theory good idea but it comes from a time where it's not necessary again dust covers were kind of going the way of the dodo during world war ii i would say Mm -hmm. and and i'm not even saying that to kind of bash dust covers because dust covers did serve a, a very good and genuine purpose especially during the first world war though they were not seen as often as one would hope because of, yeah. you know, muddy conditions, terrible conditions. And the Arasaka itself is not, a, you know, not a bad action. So if anything really does get in that bolt, you can kind of clean it out and remedy that pretty quickly, even in combat, I'd say. Yeah, and they, they have enough 
I don't want to say slop built into them, but there's enough excess space where, I mean, you would really have to get something in there to jam it up where you couldn't run that bolt back and forth. If anything, I think like the dust cover would be more inhibiting because now you have more steel to trap stuff. Exactly. So, so once it gets in there, it's, it's just sloshing around inside and bam, you're beat. Yup. Yup. Exactly. So, I mean, those are, those are some of the cool features that oh. are really unique to the Arasakas. The broken stocks. Everyone thinks they are broken stocks when they see them. Mm, that's right. Yeah. So they ended up uh, dovetailing the bottom part of the toe of the stock in. And I always just thought that was because Japan only had skinny little trees and they didn't yeah. have enough wood. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they don't have massive trees that, you know, in a big logging industry for it, given that they're just a tiny little island. But but it also reinforces it. I was going to say, that was the whole point, was to actually reinforce the stock, whether the, the wood was of lesser, you know, skinny little trees or bigger, thicker <laughs> trees. With that two-part stock, it was a better reinforcement stock. You saw that on a lot of rifles on the era, just not always as obvious. Like yeah. on the Arasakas. Most in the guns. Don't they have the uh, small part of the toe spliced in? I was actually about to say the Finnish ones in particular are the ones that I always come to mind because they have the what looks like the jaws interlocking on the M39. Yes, yep, so yep. I forget if that was on the post-war or, yeah, the post-war, I believe, was the one that was like the squares. And, you know, th- this isn't a right, this, is, this isn't about the M39, but this mm-hmm. is about the Type 99. So forget the Finnish M39 for now. I'll never forget the Finnish M39. <laughs> but the Arasaka... <laughs> fin rifles. Oh, I love them. I love them. But the the Type 99, yeah, it was that two-piece stock for reinforcement. And something I had learned from you over the years was you should not sand those stocks. Yeah, don't sand those bastards. Yeah, first off... A lot of uh, USGIs found that out the hard way. Yeah, so can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so the original Finnish... Well, I shouldn't even say the original finish. The military finish for the Arasaka was basically a lacquer. And if you know anything about lacquers, um, they come from trees. You know, you have mm-hmm. to, what is it, get the sap, basically, and make your lacquer from it, from my understanding. Now, the Japanese use a lacquer called Yurushi, I think it is. Yurushi, okay. probably. I don't know. I'm horrible at pronouncing Japanese words. It's not something but... that translates into English very well. No, Yurushi, I think it is. So basically, it's from a descendant or the same family of the poison sumac tree. So when you start sanding it, you can give yourself dermatitis very easily. Yeah, so you're basically sanding and releasing poison into the air. Yeah, and you get it all over your skins, you can breathe it in, and from my understanding, a lot of GIs found this out the hard way on the boat's back. Sorry, ships. Yeah, no, that would not be... Imagine that already being on the ship, you know, just fighting the war and already being sick from potentially whatever other disease it was over there. Just going, you know what? I'm going to clean up this stock. I don't really have much to do. (laughs) Yep. And then, ah, that's a, that's a nightmare in itself. Yep. So it's one of those things, like every time I work on Arasaka's, it's it's one thing to keep in mind. Yeah. You can't really refinish those unless you do it outside, I guess. You can, but yeah, you definitely need to take the proper precautions. First off, you shouldn't be refinishing those stocks anyway. They're old military surplus. Bubba, shame. (laughs) Yeah. Which I actually, the one I have in the shop currently, just need like a little bit of cleanup on the finish. After years, you get dust and sort of, it it kind of starts to, uh, I don't want to say crack, but. I don't. I, I almost don't like, exactly know. The, almost like chip for it. It kind of gets like it almost yeah. looks like an ooze kind of. I know what you're talking about because the one mm-hmm. I have is very similar. Yeah. So what I do, I typically get like a stock conditioner 
and put it on a leather pad and just kind of rub that and that seems to work well you're not creating any dust or anything like that but yeah i would i would highly advise against refinishing one of those that's that's for sure yeah uh, you know the other two unique things that come to mind with the arisakas we talked about the markings earlier there's mm-hmm. the mum on top so you see some with the mum some without the mum yes the chrysanthemum yep. chrysanthemum I, I believe it's actually chrysanthemum chrysanthemum <laughs> The mum, yes. The mum. Yeah, that's why everybody just calls it the mum. Yes. It's actually a flower. Yeah, it's just a flower. And towards the end of the war, I guess, when rifles were captured, typically they would remove the mum on them. They would cross them off as, like, respect to the emperor or something of that nature. Yes. Yeah, because the mum signified that it was essentially a possession of the emperor. Yeah, so you see a lot Taking it out of the country without it, or with the mum, was basically like stealing directly from the emperor and considered insulting. So guess what? If you have one with the mum still on it, you just stole from the Emperor of Japan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's not going to miss them. No. And, uh, yeah, the last feature I think is really cool was the the, the chrome-lined. The Type 99s were chrome-lined, so they were much easier to clean, which especially mm-hmm. especially over in the Pacific, that was something that was a very useful feature for the Type 99s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. With that kind of humidity and just, you know, dirty conditions, you know, going through the jungles and shit like that, chrome-lined oh, well, bore is like a godsend. And you have to imagine the quality of the ammunition they were using, especially as the war progressed, got dirtier and worse and worse. Yup, yup. So you have to imagine having that chrome lining, hey, that's that's going to really help the troops' rifles and maintaining the rifles' longevity in the field. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the rifles actually weren't marked with the mum. Have you ever seen the ones with, uh, was it two concentric circles? Almost kind of looks like a bullseye, roughly. Have you ever uh... seen those ones? I'm trying to think. I really can't say I have. No. I've seen a couple examples of them online, and I believe they were uh, issued to, like, paramilitary forces. Huh. Yeah, oh. so because it, it wasn't considered, like, uh, property of Japan at that point, you know, they, they marked them separately. That wasn't, like, one of those where they did them. Actually, the that wasn't, like, uh, I believe for the Siamese Mausers or anything like that. Uh, I couldn't tell you. It's been a while since I've seen a Siamese Mauser. Yeah, there. I, I think they had a very similar, similar marking. But I could be, I could be completely wrong about that. I'm gonna have to do some, <laughs> do some a little more research under that. That's pretty cool. I didn't realize that, yeah. to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And that that's one of the great things about the Arasaka. The more you start diving into it, like the markings, the arsenals, stuff like that, it is a really unique rifle just to start researching. Oh, there's there's so much behind them. I mean, just even the very, you know, just the differences between the original wartime and what can be missing on a wartime rifle versus something mm-hmm. like a late war rifle, like the last ditch rifles, which are yeah. more, I think, more people commonly see when it comes to Arasakas. They typically see them, the ones you typically see scattered about in the corner of the gun show, like Tyler was talking about. Yeah. Are, are always typ- dusty. They're always dusty. Nobody ever cleaned those. And no. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a shame. There's always a little bit of rust on them, and it, I think it's because half the guys probably didn't even really shoot them. Yeah, they just disregard it. It's like, eh, I bought it as a collector piece and just stuck it in the safe. Now yeah. I don't want it anymore. Yeah, and they didn't shoot it because they thought, again, they were going to blow up, which we've already talked about is not true. Even though the last-ditch ones, which actually the J- Japanese military called them the substitute version. They called them Type 99 Substitute. Mm-hmm. And now why was that? Why did they start switching everything? So the reason they went to the substitute version or the the last ditch version is more commonly known is because the war was not going well for the Japanese in 1943. The Allies were basically moving all in the Pacific. You know, after Midway, the Japanese Navy was in a very poor state. 
their island hopping campaign was not going very well for them, so they needed to reduce costs and reduce materials on the actual rifles themselves and anything and get as many of everything as they could out everywhere. Yeah, I mean, they're on a tiny little island. Resource, resources are very limited. So as the war progresses and people start cutting off your imports, well, yep, the right figure out another way. Exactly. So the rifles, they ended up having a little bit of changes to them. And, you know, now here's the thing about this, too. There's this big misconception that these rifles aren't safe, and we've talked about that's not true. And, yes, that a lot of the last-ditch series of rifles did have less of a finish. They would have less of a quality steel, you could say, but they were not unsafe rifles. They were still made to be in combat. Exactly. The Japanese army was not... You know, misconception here is that because the Japanese had the kamikazes and everything, that, like, the Japanese were just going to give them, you know, awful rifles that were just going to blow up in their faces because they'd rather have them die than... No, that makes no sense. uh, You know, absolutely Mm. not. You get all these myths like that coming out of the war, though. And Exactly. And that's not true. They were were not going to release a rifle for mass production that would have potential to blow up and harm their troops. They were trying to defend their country, and they wanted every rifle they could to be, you know, again, fight to the last man. That was the Japanese doctrine. So, yeah, it might have been a lesser quality steel, but it was not unsafe by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. And there were even parts where they completely nicked steel. I mean, look at the butt plate. Instead of a steel butt plate, they figured, why do we need that? They just slapped another piece of wood on there and nailed it in with three nails. Yep, exactly. There was, so that's, some of the cool things with the last ditch rifles are there was just so many varieties of them. You could almost put like 10 in a room together and not two would be the same. Yeah, and you can almost see like a timeline too of Mm -hmm. like, hey, they nixed this. Then, you know, they realize, oh, we don't need that either or we could make this a lot simpler. Like the the safety on those, for like the normal Type 99, you had this beautiful knurled like gigantic palm button. So to engage the safety, you would what? Push it forward and rotate it to the right or left. I forget exactly Mm -hmm. which way it goes. But uh, on the last ditch rifles, man, does it look crude. Uh, They're marred. Sometimes there's no even texture. The one I have, there's no texture to it. It's just like rough steel. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're nasty looking. So like any bit of like, you know, art, that was on that rifle just got ditched. I mean, mm-hmm. eh, last ditch. Yeah, um, kind of, kind of fitting. <laughs> the adjustable sights. They did away with that whole mechanism because anytime that, you have to assemble stuff, that takes man hours. Yep, exactly. That was one thing that was across the board with all the last ditch versions was they all had a fixed sight and it was fixed sight out to three hundred meters. Yep, and just a big peephole. That was it. Yep. There was also no monopod. That was something universal amongst all of them. They didn't have a monopod. That was just a waste of steel. Same thing with yep. the dust cover. Um, Front sights, they ditch the ears off of them. Yep. But I think some do. Again, this is that whole, there's many varieties of them where some might have some of these weird barrel features where they might have had a couple barrels left over still that had those ears yeah, on them. Yeah, exactly. That they would throw I mean, you're going to use sights. what you have on hand. Exactly. The other thing was, like, most people would say that they weren't chrome-lined, but the majority of last-ditch rifles I've seen have been chrome-lined. Oh, yeah? I've never really taken notice of that. Yeah, that's something that... I've read kind of across the board where they mostly mm-hmm. say, like, you know, hey, even though there are some, they were mostly non-chrome line barrels just to, again, save. And in my personal firsthand experience, I've seen more with chrome lining than not. So yeah. take that for what you will. Now, did they have sling swivels on the, the last ditch rifles? I can't remember, honestly. So, so yes and no. So that was another cause. <laughs> yes and no. Okay. The reason I say yes and no is because some of them did, but most of them they would remove the actual metal, you know, rear sling swivel. I actually saw 
uh, one example, I've actually seen several examples like this, and I actually thought these were kind of cool, and I still do kind of want to find one, where they literally just drilled a hole through the stock in the front and the rear and just literally had a piece oh, of... Oh, there you go. It. Yeah, I swear, dude. I've seen at least <laughs> three or four of them like that, and I think I think that's just cool. That's just something I would like to have down the road in my collection is one of those kind of Arasakas. And yep. yeah, Now, so- I think they still took the bayonet, though, didn't they? Because I know the Japanese were very big on... Yeah, they um, would... Uh, type 30 bayonets. Yeah, so for the most part, they would, again, have the bayonet lug. I mean, I have to imagine a couple didn't, just, again, the due to the variety and stuff like that during the war. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, for the most part, they would have the bayonet lug on them because they wanted to keep that doctrine of fighting with the bayonet. Yep, yeah, that was that was big. That was essentially, like, the, uh, the sword of the uh, infantry soldier. Pretty much the yeah. modern samurai. Yeah, yeah, that's really what it amounted to. So it was something they were, you know, they would try and keep on as much as humanly possible. But, like, all the stuff that wasn't necessary to it, like the sling swivel, you know, something where they could just tie the sling around at another part, dust cover, any extra moving parts that really weren't necessary that made the Type 99 what it originally was, a nice, beautiful-looking rifle, they basically said, we're going to get rid of. Yep. Skinny it up. Yep, pretty much. And the reason was... Cost-cutting measures, like we said, they needed as many rifles out there as they possibly could. Yep. I wonder what the the weight difference is on those. That's that's one thing I never thought to look up. What the the weight difference is between you know your your most rudimentary uh, last ditch rifle and one of the early Type 99s with everything on it. You know, just see how much weight they were actually able to to shave off. Because I mean, in one way, I'm sure the troops probably appreciated that. Yeah, if I recall, it was actually about a pound or so, depending on depending on the version. It could be up to about a pound. Yeah, which, I mean, when you're talking about a rifle, a pound is a lot. Oh, yeah. But you also have to remember, when you take that pound off, too, you also add some recoil to it. Yeah. That was the other thing, yeah. too. You see the removal of some wood on the stocks on some of the the, the last-ditch versions as well. Another cost Yeah, that's measure. right. Yeah, they have that up front. They, they have a little bit different. They look a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And they they still kept it five rounds, I believe. So as far as like you know, yep, the, everything was the still depth fun. of it and everything, it was it was all the same. Yep, the idea was mainly just to have a again more mass produced rifle for the war to equip the troops and again hold back the the allies as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And then you know Russia kind of showed up. <laughs> yeah, and that, that that was about the end of that. Yeah, so that was pretty much, you know, it's a shame because yeah, the Arasaka was on the losing side of the war, but. It's it's a very it's a great rifle and it it's got a lot of history behind it and it's got a lot of you know it's got a lot of history here in the United States with the shooting community too. Yeah, I mean people people tend to love them. Yeah, the the problem with them though, I would say is getting ammo for them. Yeah, I know um who was it? It might have been Hornady was producing like a um like a World War 2 line or something like that a while back. I remember picking up a box of Cabela's of 7 7.7 Jap because it was designed just for like the old military rifles but it is really hard i don't even think like uh does ppu make any no ppu makes the brass for them so if you're looking to reload and make your own ammunition you can get the brass from ppu the one of the few who i know who still makes it and actively has it in stock is norma and you have to order directly norma them. maybe that's who i was thinking of. i think that's who you were thinking of there because they actually i looked into the history of it someone had told me that norma had actually bought some dyes from PPU, and that's why they make the rounds or something of that nature, which I think is pretty cool. Anything to keep the old rifles in service. Yeah, I I was really hoping PPU would put out an actual 7.7 Japanese round because it would probably be a little bit cheaper than the Norma stuff. And the Norma stuff is usually pretty good for that. 
Oh, yeah, because you look at PPU, for any of those who like doing the old surplus shooting, if you haven't checked out the PPU ammunition, that's your that's your go-to for everything. Yep. Yeah, the, and it, it, it's pretty good shooting ammunition. I'll, oh, it's, I'll give it that. For being on the cheaper side? It's great ammunition. No matter whether it's the modern calibers or the old stuff, I love it. I really do. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah. you know, again, they produce all the calibers that you can, you know, 8mm Mauser, 303 British, 856R, stuff like that. It's really cool stuff. 7.5 French. Yep. You know what, though? One thing we should probably touch on is that not all of these Arasakas were actually Type 99s made for combat use, that there's a lot of trainers that have been out there in circulation as well. And that's probably more or less where the myth of these rifles blowing up comes from. So the Arasaka trainer rifles, if I recall correctly, they were they didn't have a Type 99 version. They just had a Type 38 version, which used the 6.5 okay. blanks. And that's where, again, the lore comes from was they were still issuing those training rifles, and the training rifles had no rifling in them, and they were made of a much lesser quality steel, and they were not... There was, yeah, it was basically mild steel. Yeah, it was... It was... You know, we've, we've joked recently with uh, cast steel, Tyler and I, and I keep mm -hmm. accidentally saying cast iron, so it was basically like a cast iron receiver in this case. Yeah. So, and if you actually did put a live round in there, yes, you would blow the rifle up because yep. it's it was not intended to withstand pressure. Yep. So I just figured, as we're wrapping up, it should be one of those things where we make a point to say, you know, be sure to check your rifle, make sure it was one designed for combat use and not a training rifle or something of that nature. And if you're not competent enough to do so, you can always take it to a gunsmith or you can even send it to me and I'll take a look over it. Yeah, you you, you have, you said one in the shop right now. If I recall correctly, yep. you had another one float through not too long ago and I think a few months ago you had one as well. So it seems like it's something you consistently see in the shop. Yeah, they, they float in from time to time. The one I have currently uh, is missing the bolt. So it was just give it a good clean in, look over and everything, make sure it's structurally safe. And then, you know, if I ever stumble across a bolt, you know, maybe pick it up, check headspace, see if it'll actually work for the rifle. Mm -hmm. So one of those things, unfortunately, that bolt's, that bolt's lost the time. You yeah. see that every once in a while. Yeah, unfortunately, the way Japanese spare parts are because they were losing power and basically after the war they didn't really continue production of the Arasaka you don't see any spare parts really for them or what spare no, parts it, you do are you know, yeah not, like not uh, junk common. guns that got parted out exactly so they're not really as prevalent like I picked up that whole stock set for the one type 38 and that was everything all the furniture actually it was m missing one one small piece I forget what it is oh it was uh, missing the floor plate the floor yep. plates seem to be pretty prevalent though and you see you seem to be able to find the bolt the bolt heads pretty pretty easily like not the, the, the bolt body and all that yeah, yeah the bolt body that's it i'm sorry you tend to yeah. see those pretty often but you don't tend to see the full bolts for yep the full bolts or like i i had a type 38 that i needed to find the uh, like the whole striker assembly you know fire pin and that knob on the back the safety knob and boy that was that was tough to hunt down yeah they're not i think i ended up paying a hundred dollars just for that yeah they're just not so the guy common. would have a complete rifle yeah, exactly. They are not common at all. Something you don't usually see too often. And again, most guys that have them that you do see like that, they would have thrown the bolts away years ago. So <laughs> good luck finding it. Yep, exactly. So it's one of those rifles. They're they're great rifles to pick one up and research. You know, just that process of finding and finding out what that rifle is, where it come came from, uh, what features it still has on it. You know, that in and of itself is a a great experience. But you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of rifles out there that are incomplete, and it can become a headache. 
Yes, I know what you're buying before you get into them, and they're one I highly recommend you buy before they go up in price, because as Tyler and I have said, they're already going up in price. Yeah, and I mean, the the price gap is huge. If you get a pretty rough one that was you know, that's missing everything, has the mum ground away. I mean, I've seen them recently for like, what, three, four hundred dollars, something like that. I was going to say last ditch, you know, with the mum ground off, you know, typical condition, you're paying about three to four hundred, I would say, I think is a fair price to pay at a show or yeah, something that, like that. That That's about bottom dollar right now for something. But I, like I said, they go all the way up thousand dollars, even more. I saw one on Gunbroker many years ago that was uh, hit with a flamethrower in a cave. So I mean, seen a couple like one half of it was completely burned up, you know, and the other half was pretty fine, but it had the paperwork documenting it and everything. And they were asking, you know, buku bucks for that one just because of the documentation, the history of it. Yeah, I met a reenactor at World War II weekend years ago, probably like 10 years ago at this point, who actually had one Mm. like that, had the whole charm mark on the fore end of the rifle. That was very unique. Very unique piece of history. Yup, yup. And, you know, they all are. They all have a little bit of history to them, which is why I love them. Mm -hmm. So, all right, Joey. I think we got to get wrapping up. I got a customer coming any minute now. So why don't you uh, finish them up, finish us up, tell tell the guys where they can find you at. All right. So, yeah, people, if you want to find me, you can come follow me over at SitePicture762 on Instagram. And you can also follow me on YouTube at SitePicture762, even though I really haven't posted a whole lot on YouTube. I know I keep saying I'm going to get to that. I still haven't. Life. <laughs> Maybe in the spring or summer. Yeah, probably in the spring or summer. I got to I gotta get some more stuff, more stuff up there. But, Tyler, yep. where can they find you at? Uh, you guys can find me on the socials at Precision Rifle Works and at PrecisionRifleWorks.com. All right. And lastly, where can they find and follow us at? They can find us at acrosstheguncounter.com and on social medias at Across the Gun Counter. Except Facebook, because they wouldn't let us on there. That's right. <laughs> I'm not sour about that. I'm kind of happy we're not on there, because I keep getting told that, you know, Facebook's not for... You're not cool if you're on Facebook, is what I was told not too long ago by yep, yep. by by one of the, the youth. By one of the youth. Yeah, by one of the youngins. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, man. Let's get this wrapped up here. <laughs> All right, guys. So take care. You know, go get yourself an Arasaka before they get too expensive. You know, make sure it's all good and go out, get some ammo and shoot it. Just stay safe with it, please. Absolutely. Take care, guys.